This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2020, one in about 45 people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to this crisis, the communities affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. My guest today is my namesake Ruth Edgett, a former newspaper journalist turned communications consultant. Ruth is also a writer who writes mainly about bygone life in maritime Canada. She has written a creative non-fiction book called A Watch in the Night, the story of Pomquet Island's last light-keeping family. One of her fiction stories, Hill 145, won the 2017 Consequence Magazine Women Writing, Women Writing War Fiction Prize, which is how actually Ruth and I met. She's originally from Canada's Maritimes and now lives in the province of Ontario. Welcome, Ruth. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Tell me about yourself. Well, as we said, um, I come from Maritime Canada, so I'm heavily influenced by that area and by the you know the bygone life in the in the early 20th century of maritime canada so that's what got me sort of interested in world war one my grandfather was a veteran of world war one and i began investigating his service in that war and uh came out of that research really actually amazed that he lived survived, came home, married, had his children, and, and that's why I'm here today. What other books have you written? I know you've mentioned you've written quite a bit of nonfiction. Could you tell me a bit more about that? I wrote a book called A Watch in the Night, which is about my mother's family. They were light keepers in uh, Maritime Canada off the coast of Nova Scotia. And so as I wrote that book, um, then I became actually quite fascinated by my grandfather. And I tried to make that book, it was, it was based on things that really happened, but the, uh, I tried to make it read like fiction so that people could really feel and feel that they were there with those characters going through those events that happened. And so it's it's fictionalized, so I call it creative nonfiction. And in addition to nonfiction, I know you write uh, fiction stories. I know we are going to talk, or I hope we'll talk about Hill 145. Are there any other fiction stories you've written? Well, I've written uh, quite a number, and I'm actually working on a short story collection of which Hill 145 will be a part. And it follows a few people through that time period, through the time period, let's say, uh, turn of the century, 1900s, up through the Second World War. And uh, so I'm following people really who are modeled upon people I've known and places I've known. And um, so some of those stories have already been published in various online or in journals in Canada, uh, in the U.S., 
and as well as the UK. And how did you choose to write about war? Well, as I said, my grandfather, he was a very fascinating character, and I researched quite a lot about his service in the First World War. And uh, I knew that he, he never spoke of his war years to us children, and he rarely spoke of them to his own children. But we knew that uh, Vimy Ridge played a very big part, the Battle of Vimy Ridge, which in Canada is, a, is quite a big deal. Every year, the anniversary of Vimy Ridge, April the 9th, um, 1917, is marked in some way. And uh, he, was, he was in that battle, and we knew that he was quite proud of his service in that battle. So that was one of the battles that I researched. And uh, so the story, Hill 145, is about a veteran who returns to Vimy Ridge, France, with his wife in 1933, I believe it is, at, for the unveiling of a monument to the soldiers who fought there for Canada. And uh, that was quite an occasion in itself. There were said to be about 100,000 people present, um, including the president of France and uh, the, uh, the reigning king of uh, England at the time, and uh, representatives from all the Commonwealth countries who had, who had fought there. And so the story is set there on the ridge, and it's about George, who is, who is the veteran soldier, um, remembering and uh, almost feeling as though he doesn't deserve to be there. Um, because he survived and he saw so many of his uh, mates uh, die. And so then he begins telling his wife, Elizabeth, about the battle. And much of the story is his telling of the things that happened, and it's his way of healing. Right. And um, and I know, you know, as we were just speaking before the beginning of the interview, I've read this story, it's such a beautiful story. I read it again um, just before, I think a couple of days. And I also do want to congratulate you for winning uh, the Consequence um, Prize for Women Writing on War. Um, one of the things that um, I felt reading it is really empathy for, particularly for George, um, can you just tell me a bit more if you're able to how you are actually actually able to create such an empathic, you know, such a character that the reader empathizes with? Well, I think one of the reasons is because I was modeling that character after my grandfather, who I knew. Um, he died when I was in my early twenties, so I did get to know him fairly well, and he was quite. He was quite a, a distant sort of a grandfather. He wasn't one of those people who you would jump up on his lap and he would tell you stories. He was he was much more standoffish than that. But at the same time, you knew he cared about you, but it wasn't in in the body language or the, or anything like that. It was it was much broader than that. So I um, and I also knew that his children, my mother's brothers and sisters, they all varied in how they, um, how they felt about him and how they felt that he either loved them or did not, because 
some of them really did not feel that they were greatly loved. Whereas my mother seems to have, she was the oldest and she seemed to have, you know, she seemed to have a good relationship with them. So I, I took all that and I thought this, this, um, well, even backing up a little bit, like doing these stories about my grandfather, it almost felt to me like I was, I was writing an apology from him to his children. And so what I was trying to do in these stories was to show how this man who could not speak it um, felt so much love for his children. And so that's what I was trying to get across in this story. And in order to do that, I had to imagine myself in his head, imagine myself as George, and uh, imagine the things that he saw and the reasons he did the things that he did and the way he felt and the way he either expressed himself or was unable to express himself. And so I tried to get that across in the story. Right. And I, and honestly, you did it so beautifully well and also effectively. Um, staying with Hill 145, could you tell me about some elements from this story that in your view could raise awareness or motivate action in response to to a humanitarian crisis. And the reason I I, I am asking this question is primarily because, you know, as you know, I have this project where I'm trying to explore how storytelling, how fiction could be used to raise awareness or motivate action when it comes to uh, responding to humanitarian crisis. Yes, and I do believe that that's a wonderful project. And there is definitely, I feel, a role for fiction in this way, because I think, I believe, sort of the, the highest calling of fiction is to put the reader in the shoes and inside the head of someone they could they could never become themselves, so that they 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 live another life, essentially, a life that they otherwise would not have lived through fiction. And so that's that was kind of my goal, and it, it is my goal when I write to, to put the readers there inside those characters and situations. What else do you think from my perspective can be used if you think about plot, if you think about you know tension, all of these sort of elements of fiction, what else can actually be used to, to sort of achieve this? Oh, that's a, that's a hard one. That's really, really hard because I think a lot of it is just um, skill and instinct on the part of the writer. Um, mm-hmm. But I do really believe that, like for me, it's very, very important to put myself inside that character in the same way, perhaps, I don't know this because I'm not an actor, but the way an actor needs to, to become the person that he is portraying. I think the writer really needs to become the people that he or she is portraying and to really imagine to the best of their ability uh, the situation. And then the rest of it just comes down to writing skill, I think, really, and and instinct as to where, uh, how you're going to approach the story and what kind of structure you're going to give it. And can you describe any incidents from your own experience where reading a fiction story or novel has led you to change the way you behave or caused you to act 
upon a particular crisis or situation? And maybe you could share with me what some of those books have been. Well, I was mentioning a couple. I mean, I guess there are many. And I think um, that's one of the one of the wonderful things about fiction that I discovered early on in life is that because, as I say, it puts you in somebody else's shoes who you would otherwise never know. And so um, the stories, two of the, two of the books that came to my mind were And the Mountains Echoed by Khalid Hosseini. And then the other was one called The Illegal by Lawrence Hill. And both of those, I know that the, the characters themselves weren't necessarily in the midst of a humanitarian crisis, but they were characters who basically were um, refugees or migrants who had to leave their homes in order to find a better life. And even if it meant breaking up their families, they were willing to do what needed to be done for future generations. Any other books? I know um, you did mention a few in, uh, in your written interview that you could share. Oh, that's right. Well, um, again, I, I did mention. So here in Canada, you know, we like to think of ourselves as a very humanitarian nation. And, you know, we like to show everybody that we're, we're taking in as many refugees as we can. We're, we're doing all these and, and asylum seekers. Um, but Canada's history is of, of taking in refugees hasn't always been that good. And one of the books that really was a, an eye opener for me uh, and it wasn't fiction, it was nonfiction. It was a it was a book written by two Canadian historians about Canada um, during the Second World War, before and during, from 1933 to 1945. And Canada did less than any other Western nation to help Jews fleeing Europe at that time. And the title of the book, None is Too Many, is taken from a quote uh, from an immigration official who was asked, how many Jews should Canada take after the war? And that was his answer. So we've come a long way since then. Um, but now what comes up in, in, in the public discourse in current days is Canada's treatment of its native people, the Aboriginal people. Uh, and the fact that um, what I was have been shocked about is that um, you know, you, you count on your government to provide the services that need to be provided. But in some areas of, of Canada, where, uh, where the, the, some Indigenous people live in Indigenous communities, the, the living conditions are really, really bad. Some don't even have reliable source of clean drinking water. And housing is very, very bad. So... Um, there is much being done right now to remedy that and and that sort of thing. And so rising from this are some really, really good Aboriginal writers um, who are writing fiction and nonfiction. But I'm really enjoying books from um, authors like Eden Robinson, who has a really, a really great series, um, the Trickster series about a, a young indigenous boy who's uh, growing up and 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 what his life is like and then there's another writer called Richard Wagamies who sadly passed away a few years ago but again he wrote some very uh, lovely books about uh, just what it was like 
to be a Native person living in Canada and having gone through uh, many things that most of most of of the what they call we call colonials, I guess the people who who settled in Canada really have no concept of. Um, and so it's it's good that we are we're learning now through literature and art um, how difficult it's been and some of the things we need to do to reconcile that. What is the one thing that you would like, um, you know, someone who will read Hill 145 to take away from that story? Well, I, I know I, I, maybe I seem like a broken record, but for me, it's about putting yourself in the other person's shoes. And if a reader can go away from Hill 145, sort of recognizing George as a person who's come through this terrible uh, situation. And uh, I guess just to put in here, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say World War I was probably the greatest humanitarian crisis of its time. Something like two million people died as a result of that war, and only half of those were combatants. The rest of them were innocent civilians who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So at any rate, and George, he goes into the war um, at age 17. And so, and there were so, so many men on all, all combatants like him who were so young and grew up on the battlefields. And so he comes out damaged. And even though um, he lives what you would call a pretty good normal life and he's got a good family and a good home, um, he can't help but come through that damaged. And I think that's, if, if it's anything I'd like people to take away, it's just understanding the damage that war does. And it's not just to the people who are displaced or uh, hurt. It's to the people who are actually fighting those wars. What one action do you think people out there listening to you can take to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis? Well, I think if we try more often to, you know, we, we have a tendency over here in the Western world, living in a, you know, a pretty sheltered life over here in the West. Um, if, if, and we become desensitized to the news over and over and over again. There's another crisis here or there. There are refugees moving from here or there, asylum seekers moving. Um, and if we could just pause for a moment and imagine, think about those people and imagine that that could be us. Um, these are, you know, these, these are people who all they want is a good life, uh, somewhere to raise their children uh, in safety uh, with enough food to eat and a clean, secure home, um, that's all anybody wants. And then to understand that, and maybe it can give it, make us feel just a bit more compassion for those people, and maybe it will help us, uh, motivate us to do something, whatever that is, to help. And my final question, which I should have asked at the beginning, is why do you actually write? Oh, <laughs> well, I said when I when I was answering these questions, how can I not write? It just seems to be something I've always been doing since I was a child. And uh, it's something that I always will do. 
as long as I'm able. Um, and as long as characters come to me, I will put their voices on paper. And I think that's, that's another part of this is, um, it's, it's, it's something that, that I really enjoy is this, because this is how it works to me, um, a line or two will come to me. Maybe it's a, it's something that a character says, and then I take that line and I write it and I imagine that character and then that character comes to life. And so the great fun of writing for me, it's almost more fun than reading because it's, uh, you don't know where this character is going to take you. All you can do is go along for the ride. I wonder about you. Why do you write, and why do you? Why have you embarked upon this project to about uh, fiction as a as a means to motivate people to take humanitarian action? That's a great question. I love telling stories, and and I really love what a good story can do, how it can transport you into a world that you know you know you had no idea about, and I just love that idea of great stories but I also do appreciate what literature does um, at a sentence level at a word level you know when you read that wonderful sentence that was crafted so well an adjective here and there I do really enjoy discovering that but why the project itself fundamentally for me you know coming working in, in humanitarian aid for all of my life our crises are just really increasing day by day. This year, we started 2020 saying one in 45 people is going to be in need of assistance. That's huge. And now we were just talking a little earlier about the coronavirus pandemic, and that's just going to stagger the needs, you know, the needs of people across the world. But for that, I feel we are struggling to advocate. And we are struggling to sort of get the, the the message across. So it's sort of for me my way of trying to set to really ask the question: Can you can a story help? <laughs> can a story um, that was set in a crisis or in a conflict or in a situation that someone else out there can relate to? Can it help them? I think, as you were saying, put themselves in this person's shoes and be aware if not do anything about it, but ultimately also hopefully um, lead to some sort of action. And that's why I'm really doing it. I, I like that. I like your answer. And, and then it reminds me that um, uh, with your one of your earlier questions about um, why, what people should take away. And, and I have this idea that, you know, not everybody is in a position as you are to actually make a career out of helping people or even to donate a lot of money to causes or even volunteer for causes. But even if a story can increase a person's compassion, then I think that helps. And it, and it helps one story at a time, maybe one person at a time. But I was saying uh, a rising tide floats all boats. And so um, even one heart turn to compassion is one more heart that that will turn to help and uh, that that has to be a good thing I, I really really like that very much i like how you phrase that 
Um, do you have any other questions for me? Well, I was thinking because you've you've made a career out of um, I guess working for the UN and 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 working in humanitarian aid, but I noticed that your degrees are in law and literature <laughs> and MFA. So I wonder how you ended up doing what you're doing. That's actually a really great question as well, and um, I actually I studied law, and when I studied law. Interestingly, I wanted to be a criminal lawyer. Um, for, for different reasons, I really wanted to do criminal law and I really wanted to be a prosecutor working on domestic violence and sexual violence. When I went to Makere University, I was exposed to human rights. I was also exposed to refugee law. And out of that, um, two things happened. I was really very much sort of attracted to this idea of human rights being for everyone and being fundamental and how we should all have, you know, equal, inalienable human rights. But I was also very much um, emotionally touched by the plight of displacement. Um, you know, just thinking about you're going on about your own life and suddenly something happens out of your control and you have no home. Sometimes you've lost your family and that really stayed with me. So when I finished uh, my education, I looked for a job with an NGO working with refugees and I worked the refugee legal aid project at the time. And then that led me to work for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees who then and even now do look for people with um, a law background because when you're looking at asylum claims, um, you do sort of need to really understand how refugee law works. So I started with you know UNHCR as a protection officer looking at uh, applications for refugees and then somehow I ended up with the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs where we are sort of looking at the broader um, crisis and looking at advocacy and coordination and information analysis, which is just beyond refugees. That's how I sort of ended up here. When you were studying your MFA, or even before that, did you find uh, fiction, like did you read fiction that was about um, refugees or crises that sort of galvanized you in that direction? No, not even. When I was doing my MFA, interestingly, I was obsessed with a whole other host of literature. I did my MFA at Bennington. And at the time, uh, you know, number one, my mentors and my teachers really felt I had these gaps in classic literature. So they really wanted me to read classic literature. Um, so I had to read a lot of that, you know, Tolstoy, you know, Chekhov, all of these big um, classical writers. But I was also much more, when I was there, um, on my program, I was the only African student. And one thing I realized for me that stood out was actually the lack of African literature on the program. And so I was actually much more obsessed with that. <laughs> with African writers and finding African writers and sort of um, reading their work. Um, I mean, some of it was, of course, about war and conflict, but it was really much more around finding a whole body of literature by African writers and other diverse writers 
and sort of trying to really uh, bring that into the program and share it with other students. But even when I was doing my MFA, I was always um, very attracted to the idea of how can stories help to tell a better image of even Africa itself as a continent, but also really um, when it comes to conflicts and, and, and that kind of literature. So I've always been very interested in it. And so when I was working on my dissertation itself and why I was working on short stories, in my mind, I did want these stories to deal with war, to deal with domestic violence, to deal with mental health. But again, you know, as you know, you know, what you think as a writer, what you're wanting to do with a story is not necessarily what really happens. Stories start off and sometimes they, you know, they sort of take their own path and go off in very, very different ways. But it wasn't really until last year, um, and I think part of it was frustration um, at work where, you know, we have all these massive crises. We have Syria, it's gone on for years. We have, you know, Sudan, South Sudan, Yemen, and advocating, you know, you know our main advocate, our main point is really the war must stop um, and then we must respond to the needs of the people. But really, there's not so much progress. I think Syria this year can, has come into 10 years. And that's why I was like, okay, we will continue to do this. But is there another way? And that's how I started to really think about stories and trying to actually look for stories and talk to people who are writing stories about war getting their perspectives and humanitarian practitioners to really see, you know, if stories can help. And ultimately, even if stories can't help, I feel, you know, we can all read more stories. I wonder, do you think, do you think that, for example, let's just look at Syria. Um, do you think that there are people writing today fiction about the situations in Syria and the, the various consequences of all the things that are happening there. Do you think they're writing those stories today and people are reading them today and finding something that they can sort of work with? Or do you think that that's something that will happen after the crisis? It's not one crisis, I don't think, in Syria. It's probably many um, are over and maybe years later, when people can sit down and write and understand what happened there. Do you think, so what I'm asking you, I guess, is do you think it's an immediate effect or do you think it's a bit of a delayed effect? Like, are we sort of, uh, I don't know, like dominoes through time with stories? I think it's both. I think it's both, um, and which is interesting about the writing process, you know, a writer could actually literally just watch a media clip and sort of it might spark their imagination to write um, uh, a story about it. So I think it's both. In fact, Khalid Hussein last year, I believe, just released um, a short book on Syria. Um, I think it's called, oh, goodness, I forget, um, See by Prayer, Prayer by Sea, but he just released a book on Syria. Um, there's a lot also of uh, books that have been written, but in Arabic. 
Um, so, but I also think afterwards we'll probably get a lot of uh, stories out of that. Um, and also coming, working on this project, what I have just realized is that there is so many stories out there. Um, it is really how do we find them and how do we make them accessible? Um, but suddenly I can definitely see both happening. Um, and I think also one can use one story. War in many ways is unique and it's not. Um, the things that happen in war in many ways are going to happen across all walls. So sometimes I think you read one good book about war and it gives you an idea of what a lot of people going through different you know, situ war situations, what life is like for them, uh, what it, it, it does really feel for them. And why I'm very much interested in stories as well is that relatability that we were talking about. If you can really relate to a character, if this character can make you feel like someone you can connect to, I think we can maybe have a little bit of uh, uptake um, than when, you know, it's just numbers in a place that's so far away from, from where we are understanding that also we are also also caught up in our own personal challenge day-to-day -day challenges i guess the thing about story is i'm thinking about in the syrian crisis there was a point where uh there was a picture on the news and in canada it was a big thing um i don't know about whether it was in the u.s or not but there was a little a picture of a little boy's body who washed up on the shore and uh he was the symbol of these people trying to get to another country and uh, and that just like everybody stopped what they were doing and listened to that story and that was a true story but the thing about fiction is um i guess what fiction does is give us those moments it can give us those moments where somebody will actually stop and and think and, and okay, so maybe this is another really important role of fiction, of course, right? We're talking about it's, it's that the reader, if it's a really, really good story, it leaves the reader after the story's over, still thinking about the story and, and cogitating and, and, and coming up with their own um, ideas as a result of having read that story. No, I fully agree. And I think then our challenge is to sort of see how could we get those ideas that readers get and sort of translate them into, <laughs> into some action, right? Well, obviously your, your, your blog and your interviews are working some, some way toward that. And I guess it's a, I was saying somewhere too, I think in my answers to your questions, it's an incremental thing, isn't it? And, uh, and we don't know where it's going to go. All we know is that we're moved to try. I fully agree. I fully agree with that. Unless you have any, you know, further thoughts and comments, I will leave it here. Well, I just want to say I'm really, really enjoying this conversation. I'm so glad we were able to actually meet because I know we've we sort of written to each other and I've read your story too that was in Consequence magazine and I really really thought that was a lovely story and I don't uh, 
I think there, every story in that magazine is amazing, um, I felt, and uh, it was a real honor to be with you in that magazine. So, thank you. Now, thank you, and thank you so much, Ruth, for your time, and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. I'm also following your blog, as you know. <laughs> That's right, and I'm following yours. <laughs> thank you. To the listeners, thank you so much for listening. You can get more information about me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana. That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A. And my blog, ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye. Special thanks to my co-producer, Jamal Swift. Music by the Nomadic Band.